Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Commander Mark Devine coming at you from Seal Fit Headquarters in sunny Encinitas, California. Hope you're all doing great today. Uh, what, a, what a great day to be alive, huh? Listen, I'm excited to have a conversation with my friend Navy SEAL Don Mann. Don Mann is just, uh, man, what a career this guy has had. You know, many, many years in the SEAL teams, many years working uh, for an alphabet soup agency with the letters uh, A, I, and C in his name. And uh, also uh, found literally a pioneer in adventure racing. You know, he's, he started the uh, Beast of the East and Odyssey Adventure Racers back before, right around the time the Echo Challenge was getting started. Uh, he and Burnett had some classic clashes. Um, it's very, very interesting. And, and recently he started the Battle Frog Obstacle Race uh, Series, which is kind of a competitor to Tough Mudder and Spartan Race. And uh, I have great hopes for that. I think it's, gonna, it's a neat concept. Uh, Don Mann uh, talks about his days as a SEAL. You know, some of the things he does train, uh, his books. So check it out. It's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind you, if you're not on our email list, please go to sealfit.com. Drop your email into the opt-in form. This is how we can keep you uh, up to date on our latest podcast and blog and SealFit TV and weekly workouts and any challenges or special offers, um, in particular around our SealFit online training, which is your place to start if you're interested in Anything else we do, you know, you want to jump into that and really start your training. Uh, if you're really gung-ho, uh, choose the highest level, which has the Unbeatable Mind course in it, which is a life-changing course. And um, that's the place to start your training. If you want to come to a Level 1 Academy, uh, I would start in the online training. If you want to come to a Kokoro Camp, start in the online training. If you want to be a certified Seal Fit mentor, you got to start in the online training. So check it out. All right. So let's enjoy the show. My chat with Don Men. Here we go. hoo ya. Hey, buddy. How are you doing, Mark? I'm outstanding, and it's great to hear from you. I'm uh, again apologize that we didn't pull it off last week, but I'm really uh, stoked to have you on right now. Uh, thank you, Mark. Those things happen, and um, um, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Let me, uh, you know, I've just given you a, a little intro to the folks, but um, let me let you know kind of who you're talking to. I mean, besides me, because you know me, <laughs> and so you know, just set the context. But um, this call, uh, as you. Um, at least know from the name, is really for our uh, SealFit's Unbeatable Mind program. And that is a, um, a broad program that really addresses the underlying uh, philosophy, principles, and methods of, you know, the, um, the mental toughness and warrior spirit training we do here at HQ. And have developed it over the past uh, five years 
and delivered it to our one-week and three-week academy where we have this immersion-type training. You know, uh, folks come and train with us for 15 hours a day for, you know, seven days straight or three weeks straight. It's very much like a warrior-monk um, kind of live-in environment, just a total focus on personal development. And um, the approach we take is integral, meaning that we focus on a whole person and we develop people physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and they're what we call Kokoro or warrior spirit. And so the folks in the Unbeatable Mind program are, are um, those people who may or may not be able to come to the academy but still want to access the knowledge and, and participate in kind of the community of practitioners around developing these skills. And so it has a little bit to do with the Navy SEALs, but, you know, it's really not about the SEALs. It's really about, um, you know, just time-worn techniques for cultivating mental toughness and warrior spirit. So uh, we have about 1,100 people in the program. This call will probably have, you know, 50 to 70 on it, um, maybe a little less because we jerked everyone around with the schedule. But <laughs> yeah. it will be it'll be archived in the program forever. And so, um, you know, unless you don't like what you hear, hear you coming out of your mouth, this, pro <laughs> this program will be archived down. And, and you can also get a copy of it if you'd like to use it or share it. So sure, having said that, that whew, that's who you're talking to. Um, and uh, why don't we start, Don, with um, just, you know, since the Navy SEAL thing is really big in everyone's mind, there's a couple things that I'd love to talk to you about. Number one um, is kind of how, how and why you got into the SEAL teams. Why don't we just start there, and then I've got a, a bunch of other questions that I think would be very interesting for our listeners. But let's just start with kind of how did you get into the teams, why did you join, and, um, you know, what were some of the major insights of that experience? Sure thing. And, Mark, congratulations on your programs. All, you know, I hear about them all the time from people who have been through them, and, and you're doing such a great service to our community. And uh, people just love your programs. But, um, you know, you. and how and why I got in SEAL teams, I was really without direction at all as a kid. I was just one of those kids who needed a, a good beating, if anything else, you know, nothing else. But I right. just didn't have any direction. I was getting in trouble, and I just was not a good kid. Uh, once I joined the Navy, though, um, I, it was like I saw some light. But when I saw that SEAL Buds video they show you in boot camp, um, uh, at that, that moment, that moment, the, the movie is over. Even during the movie, I was absolutely positive there's only one thing in my life I wanted to do. And, and that's happening to kids all over the country now, of course. Yeah. But, uh, right. I, you know, I'm just very thankful um, that, that, that I, I had the opportunity to, to go to Buds and become a SEAL. And I spent 21 years in the Navy, then retired, but there's not one day ever that I wish I had done something different. Right. Oh, I tell you what, I feel the same way. Yeah, hey, was that, sure. by the way, was that video called Be Someone Special? <laughs> Probably. I think so. I think yeah, it was. I, I think it was. I, I love that video. In fact, I, I need to drum up a copy of it and bring yeah. it into the Unbeatable Mind program. Hey, Dustin, make a mental know that. It's got to be on YouTube somewhere. This is a video... Probably the only one that, that it was around for about 20 years. I think it was probably produced in the mid-'80s, would you say, Don? I think it, so, yep. It's cool because they had, um, they had a uh, scenario where um, a couple, a sniper team, you know, literally parachuted in with their gear, you know, did a, um, a you know, uh, over-the-beach kind of op, went in and blew up. I guess it's, it's where they now have advanced training down south of um, Bud's, right? What do they call that? The uh, elephant cage? 
Yep, that's right. Down I was thinking the same thing. They went in and did an op, and they blew up. And they were like these these guys, you know, were supposed to be like these Soviet, you know, soldiers, and they took them out and blew this place up. And then they extracted and they did an old UDT cash recovery kind of recovery. And I mean, it was just incredible. And then they went into you know the different phases of budge training, and and uh, man, was that inspirational. And I I think it, that's what kind of nailed me too. Anyways, yeah. I don't know why I went off on that. I'm, I'm sometimes I get on these rabbit holes and I get inspired about something. But so but you, you have a good uh, memory. <laughs> yeah, where did you serve uh, when you were active, Don? Uh, initially, you know, right out of buds, I went to SEAL Team One, and right. um, and I spent three and a half years there until I got selected to come over to uh, SEAL Team Six. Right. And um, at that time, that's what it, it was called, SEAL Team Six. So there was no secret right. then. So I went over there. And um, spent four years, and then we had a, a lot of activity going on down in Central South America. So I went down there, and I ended up, I was going to go for one year, but there was, that's where all the action was in, the time, in those times. So I ended up staying down there for four years, and then got commissioned as a warrant. And I wanted to go back to six, but what you had to do is go to another team before you can go right back. So I went to Team 2, okay. and um, had a great time at SEAL Team 2, and then went back to to six and retired out of there in 98. Okay. And you know, you know, Mark, uh, if, if, if I could do it all over again, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to one seal team one, go to seal team two, seal team six and spend time in central South America. It just couldn't have worked out any better. I'm just so happy. Those are the four places I got to serve. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Those are, you know, the callers maybe don't really understand or appreciate the distinctions between the different teams. But, you know, team one and two were the first two teams. Team one is the first commission, team two. Actually, I think there's probably some question as to whether they're commissioned at the same time or slightly different. Maybe you know, but they were commissioned back in 60, I think 63 or 64. And it was those are the only two teams for a number of years. And so there was a lot of history and tradition with those two teams. And, and they're super uh, well run, you know. And then Team Six, of course, was uh, founded by Dick Marcinko. Now, did you work directly with um, Marcinko when you went over to, to Mob Six? You know, he was over there quite a bit, but he had just left to start the Red Cell program. Okay. And uh, so he had just left, and uh, you know, I stay. Actually, he did some work with me on my shooting book, so I stay in touch with him. I saw him at a reunion about a year or so ago, and. Um, you know, there's mixed feelings on Dick Marcinko. If you talk right. to the guys who worked right other right under him, they love him. They love, they love and, him. Uh, yeah. And I, I think the world of him myself because, he, I mean, here is this guy, definitely a bull in a china shop. He came pushing Navy bureaucracy out of the way, and he created SEAL Team 6 without the Navy really wanting him to do it the way he did it. Right. But he yeah. created it and um, and then got in trouble. <laughs> he went to prison, right. and uh, then he got out, and uh, we had a, an officer's call where all the officers at six, we all got together all to meet all the commanding officers, the past, you know, the, all the past commanding officers. And he wasn't able to attend because he was a felon, which is oh. pretty ironic. <laughs> but uh, right. I, I think he's done the world. I mean, boy, they've shown what he created and what, what his uh, team can do. And all field right. teams, of course. But yeah, so I think the world of him. Yeah, his contribution to special ops in the country is beyond repute. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. The level of... Um, professionalism of the team shot up about, I would say it's happened maybe 10 years or so. And I, you know, kind of guessing at the number after team six was formed, when the guys started to, to trickle back to the teams, originally nobody wanted to go back to the, the you know, the, the regular number of teams when they're at six, but then the Navy started forcing guys back. Remember that? 
and uh, you couldn't homestead yeah. there anymore. And so, that, and then they made it a um, part of the protocol to send guys out to the different teams to be in training roles and leadership roles, and um, and then putting you know guys who were in troop leadership roles, lieutenant commanders and commanders, back into leadership roles at the regular teams, and yeah. and all the equipment, um, you know, research that was done there, flowing back to the teams, and you know, in the '90s. In early 2000s, the professionalism of the teams um, went through the roof, and it was all because of Dev Drew and Marcinko's, you know, basically the balls he had to start that unit. I heard right. that essentially that he he had a friend, um, you know, some admiral that was working in the budget department, and they literally lined out like an F-14 and reapportioned that money to create uh, SEAL Team right. 6. Pretty yep. funny story. But this is the 50th anniversary of SEAL Team 1 and 2. Um, right. To go back, this is the 50th anniversary, and uh, so the teams are very excited this year. And then, of course, now, you know, get tw- SEAL teams all the way up to 12-plus. Uh, it's it's a, a growing industry, that's for sure. Yeah, it sure is. I kind of laugh. Um, we uh, I was in the reserves, you know, as you know, for the last 10 years of my career. I did 10 active, 10 reserves um, when it was all kind of stacked up. And um, the reserves reorganized like three or four years ago. And now the reserves have their own naval special warfare groups. I think it's uh, group 11 and 12, and and now SEAL teams. And so um, the the West Coast reserves are now SEAL Team 17, and the East Coast reserves are SEAL Team 18. And I know a bunch of, bunch of guys went to a reunion once, uh, or they were hanging out at a bar like McPee's. We were in town for a reunion, and you know we're telling some, some old timers were like, "Well, so where do you work?" And they're like, "Well, I'm at SEAL Team 17." And the guys just did not believe him. They thought it was. A, they thought these guys were frauds. You know, it could not yeah. convince old time. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So when you did your, um, I want to talk a little bit about the SEER and the survival training. How did you get involved in that? And what part of your career did you do that uh, work when you're on active duty? Okay. Well, um, right after um, I assigned, I got assigned to SEAL Team One. Um, and, and all my SEAL buddies were asking, what, what the heck are you doing that for? You don't have to do that. But as soon as I got there, I applied to go to SEER school. Okay. And, um, yeah. and SEER school is kind of, you know, a kick in the, in the pants, to say it nicely. But it's right. survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school. And there's the Navy has the two of them. They have one in California at Warner Springs, and they have the other one up in Maine. And right. um, it's it's really for the aviators and spec ops folks for for right. if you get shot down or captured behind enemy lines, how to survive. And it was a great experience. It's you know you you learn to eat off the land. You eat whatever animals you can catch, and you get the plants and the cactus, and you get the water from the cactus, and and you do some trapping and some fishing and survival, right. and then you get interrogated. And uh, you know the government. Com- We've had people complaining about how we've interrogated terrorists. I mean, they had it easy compared to what people get at SEER school. It's not yeah. really an issue at all. The waterboard wasn't an issue. The box right. filled with smoke is not an issue. But they train these young guys how to survive in captivity, in governmental right. captivity or non-governmental, you know, for instance, terrorist-type captivity. And they right. just give some good scenarios. Then they capture you, and you spend a couple of days being interrogated and and really, you the, the people come in there with weak minds. Some of them cry. Some of them even believe they're in another country and they've really been captured. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Uh, people could have such weak minds coming into there. So, so after SEER school, um, then I, uh, you know, be- between platoon and platoon training and things, I got assigned a training cell, 
And at SEAL Team 1, we were very busy in the deserts. So uh, right. I ran the desert survival course out there. Okay. At SEAL Team 2, I ran the mountain survival course. And down in Central South America, I ran the jungle survival course. And so... Uh, and then at Team Two also, I did a lot with the water, with the uh, the water ops. So right. kind of got all the survival training jobs at the different teams, and and I love survival. I, yeah. Then I went on to the advanced fear school that they have out in Washington State. Right. And then um, with the government programs, got into helping civilians uh, teach and, and to learn survival. So it's been a big part of my life. And then the, uh, the 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 publisher asked me to write the Navy SEAL Survival Handbook, and right. um, and I was a little reluctant because I really didn't want to write another book. They right. said, "We'll just give you another year in advance to do it, and we'll publish whatever you send us." So I took my time and did that. That took about a year and a half to put that together. That is really cool. You know, I I honestly think that that publisher contacted me. Um, and I, I thought about it for about two minutes of doing that book, and then I was like, no, I don't think that um, that's, I'm the right guy. And I don't think that I referred them to you. I apologize, but they found you anyways. But uh, I, I don't have the book, but I'm anxious to read it. I, I think um, it's going to be an important contribution. And I want to come back to that a little bit later and talk about some ideas um, you know, that might be helpful to the, to, to the listeners. But um, you know, one of our members had a question, and, and I, I've got a lot of experience uh, working with other Tier one operators, you know, like uh, combat controllers, and maybe not uh, tier one is not the right word actually, but uh, other spec ops uh, forces. But um, we had a, uh, one of our members is a pilot, right? Um, I, I think he's a, um, a fighter pilot who's making a crossover in the Air Force to go to the ground side, and so he's either going to become a PJ or a combat controller. And he was kind of curious of what your experiences were working with those guys um, as a tier one operator. Okay. Well, you know, uh, yeah, we did. We, I worked very, very closely with a large number of PJs and CCT, both the pararescue and the combat controllers. And on a scale of 1 to 10, every one of them was a 10 plus. Yeah. And I know they maybe they sent us the best and they sent Delta Force the best. But really, when you're shooting, diving, jumping, assaulting a building, doing a plane takedown, whatever the mission was, the CCT and PJs were right in stack with you. They were going in the door with you. They were behind the shooters, but they right. still would be in the room, you know, a second after the shooting was stopped. And they were just fantastic. You know, they did all the night jumps with us, the hay hose, right. the, uh, right. the diving, and they were good shots. And the, the medics were the best medics I've seen in the U.S. military. And the radio, the, the radio guys, you know, we always have problems setting up comms and getting comms. But mm -hmm. those CCT guys, never once do you ever hear them say, I can't get comms or we've lost comms. Somehow I, they always got comms. They, they're, they're super professional troops. Yeah, you know, I, I could mirror that statement. One of the things that's kind of interesting about those communities is that they're still really, really small. I kind of imagine what it was like back when, you know, there were 200 people in the SEAL teams. And what a club that much it felt like. And it kind of dovetails kind of with the conversation that's going on today about the SEALs being a little bit too vocal, maybe, um, you know, maybe a few too many guys, you know, pounding their chest. But you don't find that in um, PJ or CCT because they're just um, just a small group of guys, you know, intensely held accountable by that small team. You know what I mean? So uber professionals all the way. Um, I think that uh, this fellow, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, makes the transition from air to ground that he will be in very good company and, and, and probably well rewarded. It'll be a, be a good one. We had a guy come through um, C 
Seal Fit Academy at Kokoro Camp two years ago. Um, we called him Pee Wee, and this is such a great guy. And Pee Wee um, was a um, Navy pilot, Navy fighter pilot, and um, he was kind of at the tail end of his flying career as well. And so he was a senior lieutenant, and he made the same switch. Like he wanted to go into the fields, but there was no path for him. So he ended up um, doing an inter-service transfer to the Air Force. And I believe right now he's in the pipeline training to become uh, PJs, which is really neat. And, you know, Mark, I could add, I, you know, I climbed uh, Denali a couple of years ago up, uh, you know, in Alaska. And uh, it's it's the coldest mountain in the world. And there's all, you know, there's a lot of fatalities up there. You know, occasionally there's fatalities up there, I should say. But right. the people who run the medical tent up there at the 17,000-foot mark are the PJs. Oh, is that the right? The PJs run the, the medical uh, survival um, up on um, wow. Denali, or some people know it is as that a, is, that a, is that a training rotation, or is that like a reserve thing, I wonder? You know, I don't know. I don't know if they're a reservist or not. I, I have a feeling they were active duty, and it's a rotational-type position. Wow. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, kind of transition a little bit out of the, uh, the SEAL team realm. I want to maybe come back to that, and we'll uh, have a, another question or two at the end. But... Um, when I first met you in real life, um, you were involved heavily with adventure racing. And um, you had a, um, a, an adventure race that you had started, I believe, called Beast of the East. Right. And I yeah. recall rumors of some, some headbutting with Mark Burnett where he would, <laughs> sched- he would schedule the Echo Challenge on the same weekend as your Beast and to try to yep. literally put you out of business. Um, Give us a, a sense. How did you get into adventure racing? Was was that a, a something that you know was a fulfilling experience for you? And, and kind of what were your insights and lessons from that? Well, you know, uh, adventure racing it was is near and dear to my heart. I mean, I love all types of sports. You know, I, I, right. just, I love sports. I'm always going to be an athlete, and I just love all types of sports. But adventure racing, really, what you have is you have five to eight. Different sports might be climbing, biking, swimming, caving, uh, but just a series of events, all human-powered, nothing motorized, right. Right. and you you go nonstop for what we were, what my what I like doing with the ten-day events, the five hundred milers, and you really right. went nonstop, and you carry everything on your back, and you do all your navigation, and you really pushed yourself to the point of hallucination and right. passing out, which is more than the military pushes most people. Right. And uh, so I loved it. So during our slow times in the field community, to train and go do a 10-day race, I just thought was perfect because you still have a team of three, four, five people. You're doing like small unit tactics. You're patrolling and navigating. The only difference is you can talk out loud. Right. And uh, you were trying to go fast. And the only mission was getting to the finish line other than right. actions at the objective. And right. then Mark Burnett, you're right. I mean, there's a cover of Wall Street Journal put his picture and my picture on the cover once because of what Mark Burnett was trying to do to me. And he wasn't only doing it to me, he was doing it to the other two big races in the world at the time. Right. There was three. There was a Southern Traverse in New Zealand right. and the Raid Galois the French put on, and I had right. the Beast of the East. And he would put his Eco Challenge right on top of ours just so, you know, nobody else could have a race. And, uh, and you know, he went on to do Survivor. Actually, last time I call, he called me, he said, boy, I got this new show. We're going to film these people on an island. And it's not going to be like adventure racing where we have to travel 500 miles to film these teams. They're going to all be filmed on an island, and that ended <laughs> up being Survivor. And Rudy wow. Bosch, you know, of course, Master Chief Rudy Bosch. Rudy yeah. Bosch worked with me for the, on the Field Adventure Challenges. Oh, and yeah. uh, 
Rudy was uh, called by Mark to go, and Rudy was the uh, the first big celebrity on the, uh, right. the Survivor shows. I remember that. He, he he lost to that gay guy, remember? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he yeah. took his hand off the post. I remember that. I watched that. I mean, that, that was yeah. the only episode of that crazy show I watched. Same here, same here. Rudy, you know? <laughs> I was so bummed. I was like, Rudy, what are you doing? <laughs> I saw Rudy at the last reunion, and he's looking. He lost his wife, Marge. Oh, no. She passed away. But Rudy's, you know, he's our bullfrog still, and he's uh, still kicking and doing well. Uh, he's an amazing guy, too. So yeah. you wrote a book. Your first book, you said, was about adventure racing. Was it essentially how to train and prepare for adventure race? Yeah. You know, there was a guy. He's a he's a politician, actually. His name's Quentin Kidd. And Quentin would come to my events, and he'd say, he said to me one day, he said, Don, you're the only person I know of who races in these events, who trains people to do these events, and you put on these events. Why don't you write a book? I said, well, I don't really like writing. (laughs) And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll do the writing. You just send me all the material by tape. So I talked on a cassette player, hooked it into a computer and sent it to him. And uh, long story short, it was a Chicago Sun-Times writer who ended up doing all the writing. And I did the editing. And um, so, yeah, we, we put together the complete guide to adventure racing. And that was really considered the Bible of adventure racing for, I think, seven or eight years. Right. Well, I'd love to find someone who could just take a tape of mine and turn it into a book. (laughs) <laughs> I'm working on, I've got the first draft done of um, Unbeatable Mind, which is the book, the kind of, that yeah. will uh, be a companion to the program. And it's it's going to be pretty good, but it's been a, I mean, it's like sticking needles in my eye to write the darn thing. But that'll uh, be an excellent book, I know. Yeah. So um, one thing, I, you know, w- w- just to finish up this, this discussion about Burnett, and maybe you can confirm this or deny it, but um, this is what I heard. I heard that Burnett, I heard this from a guy named Tommy Baynard. I don't know if you know Tommy. So I know Tommy real well. Yeah, Tommy's a great friend of mine. He he does still does some rope work for me every once in a while when I do this um, big leadership event for a Catholic high school I put together. We put 250 kids through a rappel tower. Tommy uh-huh. does that with me every year. It's really cool. <laughs> a bunch of also log PT and seal PT. It's really cool. Anyways, that's a sidebar. The um, so Tommy told me that he did the ropes work for Mark. I think on his first Echo Challenge, and Mark had sold five title sponsorships for a million dollars each. Did you hear that story? Um, I don't think I heard this story. No, I don't think so. So like he had he had Sony and and you know other some other big company and like he would have he would be flying around in a helicopter with a team that would strip all the all the flags down for one title sponsor and put up the next and oh. you know while they flew in the execs from <laughs> the other company. <laughs> oh no no I never heard that I that doesn't surprise me. I know. Anyway, that guy's a real real character. So let let me turn my attention, uh, Don, to shooting, right? A lot of folks on the phone um, are probably uh, enthusiasts of shooting or have experience as a shooter. And I know you're really good at teaching um, shooting, right? I'm probably really good at teaching advanced shooters, but also um, beginners. So if you could summarize for me, like, what what are some of the the most effective – techniques for shooting to get really good at shooting quickly does that make any sense it does you know okay it does and um and uh the modern day gunsling is the shooting book that i put together and uh and it was actually three times bigger bigger than it is now it had all the shotgun it had all the long gun in it and the reason it only has pistol in it now is because the publisher said it was too long 
But the, right? I go I go in depth on the the mindset it takes to be a shooter because right. you know a lot of people can go to a shot show or they can go to a a swap meet and they could buy a weapon and they can carry it on them and they think they're ready to fight uh, defend right. themselves and it's so untrue. Right. Uh, the first thing you really have to do is make the sit down and think to yourself, okay, this weapon it's loaded. If I take this out and there's a threat coming at me. I have to be willing to point at that person's center mass and pull the trigger until he's down. And right. and that that doesn't come just automatically. I mean, the, Dave Dr. you know David Grossman's done years and years right. and years of research on people unwilling to take the enemy's life and right. soldiers in war and combat right. all the way up right. through Vietnam. Um so you do have to train yourself you ha- or be trained by somebody to realize the mindset is you're carrying a weapon or you keep a weapon in your vehicle or you keep it next to the side of your bed because if a threat appears you have to quickly be willing to take his life and the problem is most shootings when you're a defensive shooter like we usually are when you're a defensive shooter the shots it's three shots they come within three seconds from within three meters away. And this has been since the 1920s. So if your office door is just kicked in and someone starts blasting away and because they know you're a SEAL and it might be Al-Qaeda or something, uh, you really have three se- You have less than three seconds to react, get that weapon up on this person's uh, center mass and start pulling the trigger. So we're always right. defensive and behind the timeline. But right. um, other than that, though, after your mind is trained, then really one of the best shooters in the world told me once, he said, you know how to take the perfect shot and never miss? And, of course, we're all interested in hearing what this great secret is from this great world champion shooter. He right. said there's only one thing you have to do. When your front sight is on the target... When you pull the trigger back, don't disrupt that front sight. And then we go, well, no kidding. That, of course, that's all there is. <laughs> it's just hard to do, and it just takes at least 3,000 repetitions to be able to do that right. quickly. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. I totally – I think this is such an important lesson that shooting, you know, proper shooting just like any other, you know, martial art, let's say, you know, if you look at the gun just as an extension of the hand – really starts in the mind and that that um you know getting control of the mind is probably one of the the most important things that we teach in unbeatable mind in fact it is our first premise that you you need to win in the mind before you enter the battle and um and so having that mindset when you approach you know getting let's say you there's a you know women uh on the call who wants to or is thinking about getting a weapon or going to the range and starting to shoot well how do you know from the standpoint of um, conditioning your mind? What what are some of the tips that you used to um, give to some of your trainees on how to really condition their mind when they're starting to learn to shoot, so that you know they don't have to unwind uh, some bad habits later on? Okay, well, uh, two big things on conditioning of the mind. It, uh, it could be summed up in simple phrases, and one's anticipation mindset. And that is, and situational awareness is the other. But right. anticipation mindset would be like probably you and me and, you know, many guys like us. When we go into a restaurant, um, and my wife doesn't even question it, you know, after a couple of years of marriage, I, I have my back to the wall because then I know I can see 270 degrees around me and, and nobody right. can get me from the back. And it doesn't disrupt my dinner and I'm not paranoid and I'm not like waiting for the bad guy to come out of the wall to attack me. But right. I know where the doors are, and and I know where my weapon is, and I know I'm completely safe, and my wife's completely safe. 
And um, that, that's one thing, anticipation mindset. Uh, I know where the doors are. Somebody could come through that door. What happens if that shady-looking guy with his hat on sideways and the gang tattoos all over him? Maybe he's got a gun on him. I'm just going to keep my eye on him. And it's just a very comfortable feeling knowing that you know what's going on in your immediate surroundings. I think that's a big, big step. And Jeff Cooper, the father yeah. of early pistol craft, he, he put, you know, he came out with Cooper's color code and that right. was, I mean, that's a great way to get your mind trained. Right. Uh, I love that. Those, we use that. We use that in our training as well. So I think the callers are familiar with that the color system. Yeah. I think those are the, uh, my, 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 uh, I'd say those are the two biggest ways to start thinking about getting your mind ready to be a combative shooter. Right. Are you familiar at all with the Trojan Horse Project that the Army did around using neuro-linguistic programming to teach shooting? No, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, it's probably um, very similar to what we did naturally in the SEALs. I think that, you know, SEALs were pretty much uh, innovators on the cutting edge of shooting techniques, but essentially what they did is they, they really looked at all the basic steps um, that are that are involved in, in basically the act of shooting and then kind of stripping away anything that was not a um like a critical node you know what i mean if it was a um if it was something you know like pulling pulling the holster or pulling the weapon out of the holster is obviously one major step leveling it and taking that front sight focus you know getting your breathing pattern um set right uh emptying your mind and focusing um solely on the act of shooting you know, there were like four or five things that they t- they considered to be the critical nodes of the act of shooting, and everything else was just kind of style. And so, you know, they weren't really too worried about stance and this and that. And so they literally just trained those critical nodes, you know, ad nauseum, you know, kind of the 10,000 sword strike approach. And um, they had really good success just by focusing on those basics. And then uh, when they found, they, what they found is when they moved to the advanced um more advanced training, you know, the the students were just so much more effective because those basics were just, you know, utterly um, conditioned to be unconsciously competent. Right. That's that's a a key phrase right there. Yep. Yeah. You know, stance is overrated. There's two points on stance. One is if you get in that good modified isosceles shooting stance and you're standing on a static range and you're just practicing drawing, leveling up your weapon, taking two shots, scanning and holstering, and you're in the perfect stance, and you do this thousands of times. The benefit is when you go to draw your weapon for real, that stance is proven to be the best stance because you have right. good lateral and forward aft stability. But really, if you had to, you could shoot with your offhand from underneath a vehicle shooting under a car tire, uh, and that's the worst stance in the world. So this, right. the stance, you don't have to have a great stance to be a great shooter, but it's just when you practice that good stance, practice that perfect practice, then when it comes time for real, your body's going to instinctively go to how it's been trained. You know, like right. we always say in the teams, you know, train like you, you're going to fight. And, um, right. and so that's why we push stance, grip, sight alignment, front sight focus, uh, right. uh, the, the, the five things that we would really push on the students. Right. Did you ever um, get into visualization at all uh, as an instructor or even as a as a SEAL um, and use it as a tool to help you uh, perform? A visualization, did you say? Right. All the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. A visualization. I mean, I used it before. I did it for four years before going to BUDS. Did you? And yeah. I, I did it for four years. I just I trained as hard as I possibly knew how to train for four years. 
And I always thought about how frigid cold that water would be or how tough those instructors are going to be or how much you're just going to burn doing the push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and flutter kicks and how the soft sand runs. And I really visualized it for four years. And because the only thing in my life I want to do is go to Bud's and do real well in Bud's. And and Bud's, there wasn't an easy day at all there for me. Every day was challenging. But I can say it was less challenging than I had visualized it. I, right. I pictured in my mind it would be tougher than it was. I'm glad it wasn't, but uh, <laughs> I, I did visualize that it would be tougher, and that made it a lot more doable and a lot more, you know, easier for me to get through it. Yeah, I, it's funny. Um, we have a lot in common in that one. I, I had a similar experience. I didn't do it for four years, but for at least a good year, I visualized Buds in all of its glory, and also visualized myself operating as a as a team guy and. Um, just like you, I mean, I was I was a super stud in the most extreme environments, and um, I had this experience that I talk about in, in the academies where I had about nine months into this um, visualization. I was doing it every day, sometimes for half an hour in a structured, you know, sometimes just kind of while I was working out or doing whatever, I was still thinking yeah. about it in an unstructured way. But the structured was done, you know, after usually a martial arts session, we would meditate for 20 minutes, a half hour. And I would I would visualize um, myself performing some act and becoming you know a Navy SEAL, getting the try and pinned on me, all this kind of stuff. And it got so real that there was a point in time where I kind of had this sense of knowingness. That's how I described just a sense of knowingness that it was a done deal that I was going to be a Navy SEAL. And um, it's only happened to me a couple times in my life, and that that was the first time that I recall it happening in. With such a sense of assuredness, you know what I mean? Like I knew, and I hadn't even gotten in. I mean, the recruiter was telling me, Mark, it's a long shot for you to go to officer cannon school with a built of buds. You only take a couple guys a year. Maybe you should think of something else, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, nope, I'm doing this. It's going to happen. The the last time I did any visualization, I went up to New Hampshire. I live in Virginia, but I went up to New Hampshire, and they have Mount Washington there, and it's the worst weather in the world. But what they have is the toughest hill climb in the world where you could ride your bicycle to the top wow. and it's uh you you you, you just um you know you climb just so it's about seven thousand feet and seven right. miles and it's um when you lean back on your bike a little bit the front wheel sometimes comes up in the air and and some people just fall over because they can't get the last stroke out on the crank but um i visualized for that ride on saturday and it was difficult but not nearly as difficult as i thought it would be and right. um i love visualization i i think a lot of athletes do it uh, you know religiously yeah i agree and i know there's a lot of you know <clears throat> discussion about whether it really works or not i mean i'm a firm believer uh certainly that it works um to help practice an internal skill right that's a no-brainer i mean sports psychologists have been doing it and most olympic athletes do it but there's some controversy as to whether it would work let's say to kind of ward off hypothermia and i've heard many other seals say and, and myself included that you know, visualization and breathing really did help ward off hypothermia. And so we teach we teach that as, you know, we don't say it's going to prevent you from getting hypothermia if you're in the ocean for too long. Clearly, exposure is going to get the best of you. But, you know, powerful deep breathing and visualizing yourself sitting in a sauna goes a long way to making that <laughs> ice water bearable, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. I I I I would I would never be convinced by anybody that visualization doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, it's powerful. Let me turn the attention to um, a couple couple things. Uh, um, I don't, I don't want to get you know into any kind of um, too deep into this, but I'm just kind of curious 
there's been some chatter, um, back channel chatter. I'm sure you've seen about the um, Bissonnette's book. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you knew Bissonnette or not. He's probably not your uh, era. No, I don't um, think we've ever met. I don't think I know him at all. Yeah, I don't think I met him either. His name sounds familiar, but um, you know, for those who uh, on the call aren't, aren't aware, he just wrote. A, he was one one of the guys on the Bin Laden raid, and he um, he wrote a, a book. I guess it's published or it's going to be published very soon called No Easy Day, which is about the experiences. And, um, of course, SOCOM and the SEALs proper are all spun up about it because, you know, technically, legally, uh, this is something you don't do. Um, but I remember I read um, something from, you know, former Ad- Admiral Olson and a couple other guys about how this has become kind of an epidemic and there's guys out there. And I'm just curious, have you gotten any flack for your book? And um, you know, what's your... What are people saying? And are you, um, you know, because I, I have mixed feelings about it. I think that, you know, I'll just say right off the head, top of the head, I think the community certainly um, is responsible in large part for what's going on. I mean, with their uh, publication of the Act of Valor, um, you know, with, with, you know, and I love Admiral McRaven. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Well, I wouldn't say, you know, personal friend anymore, but he was, um, we were close when he was my CEO at SEAL Team 3 and then my Commodore at Group 1 and, I always looked at him as a mentor, but he was on the cover of Time magazine. And, you know, so the, the, the institution itself has really put the seals out there. And then yet when individuals who, you know, want to tell their story do it, all of a sudden they get slapped, you know what I mean? Or they're, yep. they're considered pariahs. And I, I just think it's grossly unfair. And I know this situation with Bissonnette is a little bit different because it's, it's highly plausible that, you know, he disclosed some some confidential information, which, you know, makes him essentially a criminal action. So he's, that's right. inexcusable. But anyways, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this whole issue. It's well, pretty touching. I'm very, very involved in the whole thing, actually, because okay. um, because I wrote a book called Inside SEAL Team 6. And uh, I got my name's been out there because of sports and the SEAL Adventure Challenges and things like yours is, you know, it's out there. Right. And um, so right after bin Laden was killed, I got three calls from three different publishers saying, hey, Don, uh, you were you were at six. You were the training officer there. Would you be uh, willing to write a story and tell us the secrets of inside there? I said, no way. I mean, <laughs> the things I learned from there are staying with me. Right. And the only thing I know about that raid is what I've seen from Fox News. And uh, anything I think you would want to know about that place that's t- even the slightest bit confidential or sensitive, I'm not talking about it. And my agent would call back and say, Don, you're turning down a lot of money. I said, well, that's the only way it can happen. That's the way it has to happen. Right. So then the publisher called and they said, yes, we know what you're saying to the other publishers. All we want is your bio and some experiences you've had in the teams and we know you're not going to give away anything classified or sensitive. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, in one condition, I also send it to the Publication Review Board for the government, for the military, and for naval special warfare. And once right. those three agencies vet it, then I'll, I'll give it to you for publishing. So right. it cost us a lot of money. Um, I it get a lot, a lot of readers saying, hey, what are these black marks in your book? But it's, that's, the way, that's the legal way to do it. Now, right. for anybody who says Steel shouldn't be writing books, we'd be the only ones who weren't writing them if that was the case, because <laughs> everybody writes about the military when they're in the military. All right. Chiefs of staff and directors of CAA and presidents, everybody talks about their experiences, but right. there's a process not to let out information, and that's that review board. And right. unfortunately, you know, uh, Chief Bissonnette 
it, it appears, and, I, and I'm trying to give them benefit of the doubt whenever I, 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 I intimately involved. I requested to go to New York City twice last week for reviews on CBS and Inside Edition and Men's Journal, and um, and I speak the truth, but I give the seal benefit of the doubt because he's a seal, right. and I just hate to think that a seal would break all rules. So I the know. last thing that came out was, well, the book might be a little phony, it might not be true, but he might not be disclosing any classified data, which would be a good thing, but still, he still broke the rules, apparently, right. and... Uh, and and so what's going to happen, a publication review board, they could pull all the books off the shelf. And any money he receives, they can grab all that from him, too. And that's been done in the past with other people in the government. Right, right. So I hate to say it, but I think he's in some trouble. I think he is, too. It's really interesting because it kind of harkens back to um, how we started the conversation. We're talking about uh, Marcinko because Marcinko you know, <laughs> had a right. simple situation, you know, when he he was kind of pissed off at the system for, um, you know, landing him in prison, even though his actions kind of obviously led him that way. Yeah. So he um Rogue Warrior, right, was his first book. That's right, Rogue Warrior, yeah. And uh, which was kind of a kiss and tell, and there's no question he disclosed a lot of um, information that shouldn't have been disclosed at the time. Now, they probably went after him as well. I'm not sure if he was untouchable at that point or, or whatnot, but... um. You know, I don't think he got in trouble for it, but um, no. I don't know. I don't really know that for sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Anyways, um, we can move on. That, that's kind of a, that's, you know, I think my my challenge is that everybody gets thrown under the bus, you know, when when someone screws up, and I guess that's pretty much human nature. And um, but it's also the um, the organization needs to take a hard look at their own role also, you know, in, in uh, being overly public. And so I guess my, my kind of final point was, you know, don't, don't hammer the former SEALs, you know, take a look at the log in your own eye before you point out the speck in heart, you know what I mean? No, Act of Valor, that is one of the top movies of the year, right? I know, that's kind of what I'm talking about, and that and, yeah. and uh, you know, just, the, just the, the community itself has been too public, and I think they finally realized that, and so they were kind of leading the charge. And now the backlash has kind of come full circle. And so I think you're going to see the SEALs go through this period of, you know, real intense, quiet, um, not letting anything out, you know, not, a, not, not allowing anything to be published. And, and rightfully so, you know what I mean? Kind of put a lid back on it. They'll probably go too much in the other direction. I understand they're also going to teach, you know, make uh, the teaching of ethics and preservation of culture as one of the missions at BUDS, which it hasn't been in the past. Yeah. So that'll be one of the main. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, we have a, about uh, a few minutes left, um, and I wanted to kind of get your. Um, this is kind of like a, the the toolkit now for the um, for the listeners about survival if something shitty goes on, you know. And, and um, you know, we all watch what's going on in the world, and you know, we have some fun and lively conversations during our Seal Fit Academies about you know, breaking down of systems and, and what's going to happen in, in, uh, with the accelerating pace of change and, and whether the world's, um, you know, food production and distribution system can maintain, you know, its sketchy, you know, kind of foothold. And what so what happens if we get caught up in a situation where all of a sudden, you know, the net goes down, the lights go out, uh, food disappears off the shelf for you know, within three days, and you're sitting there with no news, no information on what's going on, regardless of how long this lasts, 
that first three days obviously would be chaos, but you know most people will survive. Then it's going to get really interesting, right? Right. So what's the you know like what do you suggest someone do at that point? You know if the lights don't come back on within three days and they're going oh shit now what? Well you know so there there are the the real survivalists who 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 won't let that happen because they've got all types of canned food and they have you know. Um, lighters and they have candles and they have flashlights all over and they have canned water and stored water everywhere. Right. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's going to be people who, if they can't turn on their computer, they're going to be lost forever. <laughs> um, right. So, but really, for survival, you 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 need shelter, and you need water, and you need food, and and those are the three real things you need. And then you have to know how to take care of yourself physically, or if you have a uh, an injury or something, you you don't want to bleed out in a few minutes. You want to be able right. to stop any major bleeders or anything but you you do need depending on the the extreme conditions of some environments um it depends how soon you'll need that shelter but shelters in the urban settings of course people can find shelters if they if they don't have one um right. if you're out in the jungle or the woods you have to create a shelter or if you're in the arctic environment or the mountains so right. shelters are important and then water and water procurement uh being able to find water is is a a very crucial skill to right. have right. uh you know uh and then food food is you know you can you can live many many days without food right. but if you're in a in a desert or in the cold cold environment you can pass you know you can you could die in a couple hours right. and you but you you so survival depends on good shelter second would be water and then food and right. um and there's there, you don't really have to go through a survival course or anything like that but if like we always carried E and E kits with us in the teams now they're called E and R kits and overseas right. they call them go bags right and really so if you know what hits the fan um you have your go bag your E and E kit you know there's a compass in there and you know there's a flashlight you know there's a fire starter and maybe you have a space blanket and that covers all the the, the basics of survival right and Survival mindset. Um, survival mindset is you have right. to sit back, have a plan, know what you're going to do, not give up. Never think about giving up. And if it's an enemy-controlled area, you know when to move and when not to move. Right. But uh, you know there, there's some super, very, very, very um, great stories out there on people who've survived for years and years and years. So right. an American, if we're talking about Americans here in America. Um, you know, unless you're lost out in the Cascade Mountains or in Denali and or someplace like that or out in the desert, survival, um, it's important, but it, it's it's not that much of a learning curve to learn the basic skills to survive. Right. I think, you know, the mindset, as you mentioned, is probably key and starts there. And, and the first thing you could say is um, do not have a mindset or avoid, I should say, a mindset of of um, expecting someone else to solve the problem, right? Expecting FEMA to be there to, to uh, swoop in and solve the problem. And those, obviously, who, who have that mindset were seriously disappointed in Katrina. You you must take care of situation on your own. And to do that, obviously, you, you know, a plan is good, but also a support group. And so I think, you know, probably a first step for a lot of people, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but it, it seems sensible to me, is to get together um, a group of like-minded individuals and just hold a meeting and say, okay, uh, here's a what-if scenario. Um, let's start thinking about 
a plan and then uh, signing some responsibilities for finding water and purifying water and shelter and food and all Absolutely. that. And so, Absolutely. you know, just having that support group and how we're going to communicate is, you know, if the cell phones go out, where are we going to meet? What's our rendezvous point? I mean, there's so many obvious things that you can think about just by sitting down and kind of whiteboarding things out in a, even over a beer uh, or two. And, and, uh, and then that becomes your little fallback group, um, your little platoon in the, in the case that something does go bad. Right. That's, that's a great suggestion. And, you know, and, and on that, you know, even if you're going to go out on a hike out in the woods or in the jungle or in the mountains or somewhere, another part of that, um, which you just reminded me of, is to leave your plan behind with somebody. Hey, I, I expect to summit around this hour. I expect I, to be down by the river basin at this hour. This is where I'm going at, and this is where I'm coming out at. And right. to leave your, your planned route with somebody, too, so they have a clue where you might be if you don't show up a day late or something. Right. Aaron Ralston would probably still have his hand if he did that, right? <laughs> uh, that's right. Yep, he had a rough time in Utah there. <laughs> Talk <laughs> yeah. about some mental toughness. Holy cow. Yeah. Shop own arm off. Outstanding. Well, I tell you what, Don, this has been a really, really cool call. I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been great fun for me, and I know that everyone's gotten a lot out of it. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Mark. I was looking forward to it, and I wish you continued success in all you do. And and thanks for everything you're doing for the SEAL community. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck with everything. And let me know if I can help with anything. And we'll have to do this again sometime. I look forward to it. All right. That was awesome, man. I love Don. Th- Don, thank you very much for your time. Um, check him out. Uh, check out his books out. Just uh, Google Don Mann, uh, author, and you'll, you'll uh, see, you know, see the books he's written, SEAL Team 6, and then a new uh, series of uh, fiction. So good stuff. All right, uh, before I sign off, uh, just a, a nod to our sponsor, MetLife Defender, ML Defender, um, identity theft protection. If you don't have it, you will need it eventually, uh, sooner than later. You certainly don't want to get it after you've been hacked and had your identity stolen. This uh, this will, will cover your ass in that event. So it's really mostly preventative, which is the important part, uh, but also they'll help you out if you do get hacked uh, on their watch. So, um, yeah, this is like the last line of defense, guys. The cyber world is is like a freaking wild, wild west, and there's a lot of bad guys out there who would, you know, rip you off in a heartbeat. So, you gotta, we gotta take measures to protect ourselves. I just recently upgraded from LifeLock to uh, MetLife Defender, and uh, it's pretty cool. I'm happy with it. So, check it out. Uh, the logo on the bottom of our website, ML Defender, in the sponsor section, will take you to a special link, and also there's a banner at NavySeal.com. All right, then. Uh, Stay focused, uh, train hard, stay in the game, and uh, have fun. We'll see you next time. Hoo-yah. Coach Devine out. Lock and load, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T. Oh.